in prison several times. I felt, I don't know how many appeals I filed. I had just got denied parole for the fifth time. And one of the counselors that was working there, uh, he, you know, he pulled me, he wasn't my counselor. He just pulled me to the side. He said, look, he said, Marvin, you know, there's an organization out there that may be able to help you. I had a lot of support from the Innocent Project. Hey guys, it's Sydney, and I'm here today with Sarah. And today we're going to talk about the Innocence Project. So Sarah, have you ever heard of the Innocence Project? Uh, yes, I have in like TV shows and movies. How about you, Sydney? So the first time I heard about the Innocence Project was last year in my forensics class. And we actually did a lot on it because of the podcast Serial. I don't know if you heard of that. Have you heard of Serial? No, I haven't. So what happened was... This high schooler was accused of killing his girlfriend, and they go through a whole thing, and then it goes over um, how he can be exonerated and past people who have been exonerated. So, Sydney, would you like to explain to me more of what the Innocence Project is? Sure. So, the Innocence Project was created by Peter Neufeld and Barry Sheck at Cardoza School of Law. So, they were both public attorneys. And they had a classroom of students, and they had a saying that if DNA can prove guilt, why can't it prove innocence? So they went off with that theory, and they decided to create a program that exonerates the wrongly convicted through DNA testing. And after they exonerate them, they want to try and reform the justice system. So I think we put a lot of trust into our justice system, and in most cases, everything is handled correctly, but there are some cases where the justice system is unfair and unjust, and right now we have a clip of Jonathan Barr stating his opinion. The system failed us, you know, uh, tremendously. It failed us. So with cases involving wrongful convictions and government misconduct, it's easy to say that the system has failed us and that's a true statement to these people. So right now we're going to play a clip of some people who were exonerated by the Innocence Project and it's going to talk about um, their letters to uh, Mr. Sheck. Yeah, yeah, but this is like, wow, this is, wow. Mr. Sheck, I'm confident that whenever the DNA test is done, it will show my innocence and this miscarriage of justice. You are the best of the best when it comes to DNA evidence. This is pretty much known throughout the country, and I desperately need your help. Greetings. I'm James Harden, Jr. I'm writing you this letter in sincere hope that you could be able to help me and my brother, Jonathan Barr, regain our freedom. My name is Jonathan Barr, and I was wrongfully convicted of a murder and a rape of my friend, Catrice Matthews, and I spent almost 20 years in prison for that crime. I spent 15 years inside of prison. I spent 11 years and three months in prison. 20 years, nine months, five days in prison for a So as we can see, when people get convicted of a crime, 
and they are innocent. They waste most of their life in jail. So right now we're going to play a clip to show how much the time was actually available that they were spending in prison and that time doesn't stop when you're in prison. It moves on. You lose people during this time and that's something you can never get back. Live longer to see this, but I know in spirit they're here and they will continue to be here for as long as I am here and as long as my daughter is here and if I am to have any more children, they will live through them. I'm thankful, I'm thankful to be home. I, I can remember my first day coming home from prison. I sat up and watched the sun come up that morning, you know, and, and you see the sunlight every morning rise in prison, but to actually feel it, you know, as a free man outside of the fences, it was a totally different experience, you know. Um, the whole time I'm watching it coming up, I'm saying, I'm free. this organization, a lot of men and women who are free now will not have been freed, and I am one of those men. So after hearing that clip, Sarah and I realized that the time that's spent in prison means that you lose the time outside of prison. You can't make up time with your children. You can't make up time with your past parents because they're gone. You can't do anything like that. And so when that actually do get out and they can again like the one guy said see the sun for the first time without looking through prison bars without looking through cage it's breathtaking and it's refreshing how many exonerations are there to date currently there are 362 exonerations to date so, what is the mission of the Innocence Project? So, the mission of the Innocence Project is to free the staggering number of innocent people who remain incarcerated and to bring reform to the system responsible for their unjust imprisonment. So, how do they go about doing that? Do they have separate ways of doing it? The, the four separate goals or pillars, if you will. So, basically, they do have four pillars of their mission and they are to exonerate, improve, reform, and support. So exonerate is to free the incarcerated, which obviously is the main goal of the project. Improve is to improve the case law through targeted legal work, which is what they're trying to do by incorporating law students into this project. Um, reform is to the past laws and implements and implement policies that prevent unlawful convictions. So later when we get into this podcast, we're going to talk about um, causes of wrongful convictions and how to solve them. And so these laws go hand in hand with them. And then the last one is to support. Uh, So it's to support the exonerees as they rebuild their lives. When people come out of prison, it's very difficult to rebuild your whole entire life. You're basically starting from nothing again. And half the time, the states don't even compensate them for a wrongful conviction. So, would you care to explain what exactly government misconduct is, Ms. Sydney? Yeah, so government misconduct is when law enforcement, government officials, prosecutors, 
um, defenders, judges, anything that incorporates that is negligent or provides some kind of misconduct or corruption that exists during a case or a trial. So while many law enforcement officers and prosecutors are honest and truthful, there are times where they are not honest and they are just trying to win a case and have their number of solved cases go up. So it leads to government misconduct. So now that we know what government misconduct is and what it encompasses, are there any statistics that you have or the number of exonerations? Because it seems like it's very close off to the public, and I don't think a lot of people actually know what it is or have even heard about it. Well, according to the National Registry of Exonerations, which was published on March 4th, 2018, um, there are 139 exonerations um, in 2017, and 84 of those were from official misconduct, which is official government misconduct. So 43 of those 84 cases did involve homicides, which would make 84% of the homicide exonerations a part of government misconduct. So you're saying that in the year 2017, 84% of the homicide cases were due to government misconduct or involved those with the exonerations? Yes, because there was 51 um, homicide and 43 of them involved the government misconduct, which if you do 43 divided by 51 times 100, you'll get 84. So now that we've had a quick math lesson from Sarah, how can we identify what government misconduct actually is or what signs do we look for in cases that involve it? Well, Sydney, the Innocence Project website gives us common forms of misconduct by law enforcement officials and common forms of misconduct by prosecutors. So I'll just list off a few, just to name some. So by law enforcement officials, it can include lying or intentionally misleading jurors about their observations, um, failing to turn over evidence to prosecutors, or coercing false confessions, and by prosecutors, that would include withholding evidence from the defense, deliberately mishandling, mistreating, or destroying evidence, and pressuring defense witnesses not to testify. So it seems that government misconduct is a huge deal in cases and legal proceedings. Now, honestly, I was not too sure about government misconduct, and I didn't really hear a lot about it. But seeing how big it is, it seems like it's very important. Are there any ways that law enforcement or the legal system has improved to try and rid of government misconduct? So one way to put checks on the power of prosecutors and law enforcement officials would be to establish criminal justice reform commissions to help study the wrongful convictions and advocate for changes in the system. And there, several states have already begun to recommend and um, help provide improvements in investigations, lab operations, defense, prosecution, and judicial review, which was necessary to ensure the integrity of the criminal process. And um, some of these states, there's 11 of them, uh, they formed Criminal Justice Reform Commission, and 
Some of those include North Carolina, Pennsylvania, California, Connecticut, and Wisconsin. So it seems that there is a big movement in the states to change it. What are these states doing to try and get rid of government misconduct or at least lower the number of cases it happens in? Well, in North Carolina, um, something called the North Carolina Actual Innocence Commission was created by the state's chief justice in 2002, and they focus on causes of wrongful uh, conviction and is considered considered a, a national role model for effectiveness and reform. And in Pennsylvania, nine men have been proven innocent by DNA testing in the recent years, and the state Senate also created an innocence commission in 2006. So before we get into the case, um, how do you feel about the death penalty? I, like personally? Personally, yes. Okay. I don't think that it should be a thing because even if, like I think that life in prison is worse than the death penalty because you have to spend your whole life thinking there and like waiting on what you did. Oh, what about you? Um, well, Okay. So, I do believe in the death penalty because I'm pretty, like, for an eye for an eye. And I think that if you kill someone that you should have that punishment as well. Or if you rape other people, like, I equate that as much as to death because it's a terrible thing you could do to a person. But the reason I asked this question... No, like, I agree. I'm not very, like... Right. No, I understand that. I'm not very, like... Yes, I completely no. about my opinions on that. Right, I completely understand about that, and it's a very controversial topic. Yeah. What I'm saying is that my opinion has started to sway a little bit more because of the Innocence Project, and I think that was what this project is trying to do. Because when we get into this case and many other cases, a lot of them are on death row. Yeah. And, and they could be innocent. Yeah. So that's the only reason I wanted to ask it. So right after this break, we're going to get into their, our case study. Sarah and I are going to play a clip about a man talking about the Innocence Project and how a normal guy can be convicted of something that he didn't do and his whole life is turned around. Was my race, who was my from my part of the world, small town in Oklahoma. I'm from a small town in Arkansas. A guy who dreamed of being a major league baseball player, the same socioeconomic background, same religious background, who had just passed away at the age of 51. I read the entire obituary. It had baseball. Ron Williamson was a second round draft pick of the Oakland A's in 1972. It had a wrongful conviction and had a frame murder with Ron and Dennis Fritz uh, framed for the murder of, of, of Peggy's daughter. It had Ron going to death row where he lost 100 pounds, went completely insane, his hair turned white, he pulled his teeth out, he came within five days of being executed. Annette received a letter one day from the smart folks in Oklahoma saying your brother will be executed on such and such a day what shall we do with his body this was all new to me and suddenly I'm, I'm researching this case that just shocked me and shocked you know these people survived it they lived through it 
So I went to Oklahoma and I met all these wonderful people. And it was it was not easy meeting Peggy, the, the mother of the victim. But she wanted to tell her story. And Christy, who became the, the spokesman for the family, and Annette and Renee, who told me everything, who gave me everything I could possibly want from Ron's Little League records to his trophies to the family portraits, everything. And then Dennis, who told me more stories than I could possibly ever write. This is the, the tip of the iceberg. We have thousands of innocent people in prison in this country right now. It's, you know, it's, that's the fact. And if we don't hurry, if we don't hustle, if we don't raise money, if we don't get them out, eventually, soon, we will know in this nation by clear DNA evidence that we've killed an innocent man. So now we're going to talk about a case study on Clemente Javier Aguirre. And we're going to talk about how this man was on death row until he was proven innocent. So in June 2004, when Aguirre was 24, he was arrested and convicted of the murders, the murder stabbings of his neighbors, Cheryl Williams and Carol Barris. So the whole time, he's now 38 he was sentenced to death in 2006 and he always maintained his innocence so the morning of june 17 2004 Aguirre found um his neighbor's bodies in their trailer home and they've been stabbed and he checked to see if the victims were still breathing which is why he had the victim's blood found on his clothing and when he realized they were dead he picked up a knife because he thought that maybe the killer was still there but then he panicked and then he threw the knife into the yard and went back to his trailer home so when he was initially questioned he said that he knew nothing about the murder at the time he was an immigrant from honduras with no criminal history and he was uh, scared that he would get deported out of the united states so what i found interesting was later when the case was retried and he was found innocent due to new dna evidence because they, um, the defense and the prosecutors both pretty much didn't really want to test the DNA of anything, which was just bad on their fault. But um, Cheryl Williams' daughter, Samantha Williams, actually, um, she threatened to kill her mom when she was in the hospital, but the police never followed up on that and investigated that, which um, led the pleased to believe later that when Samantha Williams confessed to her friends and acquaintances that she killed her mom um, and her grandmother, I'm thinking. And there's also, uh, she made statements on police video that suggest that she killed him. And she also said in those statements that her mom and her had a troubled relationship and there was an argument the night of the murders. And the new DNA evidence points to her and the original judge from the 2006 trial says that if he knew this evidence would have overruled the jury's verdict so this is government misconduct because joshua dubbin one of aguirre's lawyers says that it was a rush to judgment and samantha threatened to kill her mom and police did not investigate which was misconduct on the police force part and they also like i believe that maybe um discrimination 
faced a uh, discrimination was a factor in this because he was an immigrant from Honduras, and he was also scared and didn't really testimony like to his best because he was scared he was going to get deported. So when Sarah and I first started reading this case and looking more into it, I was really shocked that the police completely ignored all other suspects and went directly to Aguirre. I don't like. What do you think about that, Sarah? I think that that plus the fact that uh, Samantha Williams straight up threatened to kill her mom and the police did nothing just really add up to the fact that like why wouldn't you test to see if there was DNA in the blood anywhere so as Sarah hinted before I think that this case did involve um, racial profiling and to be in a country where justice is blind and it's supposed to be like you know, the truth and innocence. Just as supposedly blind. Right. And it's supposed to be truth and innocence that I really think that they said, oh, look at this. This guy was here. They found him. He was holding the murder weapon. Oh, he, he must be it. He had blood on his clothes. Because and, he was checking to see if they were still alive. And I understand, like, the whole suspicion with him. But they didn't even investigate the daughter. Yeah, like, there was more of a suspicion of the daughter obviously, than there was, because, like, Aguirre never said that he was going to kill these people, that the daughter said she was going to kill those people. Like, Aguirre, according to the argument, didn't really have any arguments, um, according to the article, my bad, he didn't really have any arguments with his neighbors, but, like, Samantha Williams did. I just don't understand how there's a direct threat, and she basically admitted to killing them. And her DNA. And the DNA. And <laughs> just didn't test it. And it makes no sense that they had the DNA readily available. It's not that they couldn't find any or it was too small and technology wasn't developed by them. No, they had the DNA available and they did not test it. And that's something wrong with both the prosecution and the defense. Like, why wouldn't you do that? Right. Either way. For government misconduct, if anything... I don't understand why the prosecution wouldn't test that because that would obviously like make the case make the case like clear and cut. So I'm shocked that they didn't test it because that would just back up their evidence further if it actually was him. Maybe they were uh, they had doubts. Yeah, I like, really think that they, they had confident. doubts and they weren't confident about their answer and that it's easy to say, "Oh, this man's an immigrant. He hasn't been here." Um, he doesn't know anything like, you know, we can just accuse him and then there's a case solved in our books. And I just, I don't understand that. And I know that we have government misconduct, but his defense attorney, how can you not test the DNA? Yeah, I mean, I guess he didn't really have enough money to get like a really good lawyer. But, um... His new lawyer now, as they like, as they reopened the case, did say it was a rush to judgment, which really, it truly was. They were just kind of like, oh, okay, let's just blame it all on him, you know, and they didn't take time to focus on it. And that's not only unfair to him, but that's unfair to the victim's families because they're living with the grief knowing that, like, their murder was, like, quote-unquote solved, but it wasn't really solved because you had the wrong guy in it. I'm sure everyone knew it. I mean, right. sure the public eye knew it. Well, do you think the public knew it? Or do you think that, again, with the whole racial profiling and discrimination, 
that coming into play, did you think that they were like, you know what I mean? And I hate to say that about anyone, and I'm not making judgments about anyone, but that's a clear argument it for is, a reason. It is. I mean, maybe. I mean, maybe like it didn't come out and say like they didn't test the DNA and all this other stuff. Like maybe they just straight up was like, um, like hey, we got this guy, but we're not releasing details on the case right now, which is like understandable. And the public would be like, okay, good, you got him. But if, but if they did like say like we got this guy, but like here's how, then right. the public would probably be like, oh, that's dumb. I think. I think it's really sad because we put a lot of trust into our justice system, at least I do, in hopes that they do the right thing. And they didn't. And they simply didn't. And if we're a country based on freedom and justice and this is what happens, I think we need to take a step back and look at our decisions and reflect on what's actually happening in our justice system. So this just further circles back into what the Innocence Project really is and the purpose of it because in this case, at least, and I'm sure many others, it literally saved this guy's life. He was on death row and he was going to die, but the Innocence Project came in and they proved his innocence and literally saved his life. To end this podcast... Sarah and I are going to insert two clips. One is about an exoneree, and one is a columnist from the New York Times. And they're going to give their best advice they can to help people avoid situations like this. Um, I would say the best advice I would give them is to first try to learn as much as they can about the criminal justice system and to get with some reporter. Um, if they find that there's some evidence, investigative reporter, and ask them to help them if they're innocent. Because for me, I believe that the media um, helped expose uh, the detective in my case that was corrupt. Um, if it wasn't for them, there wouldn't have been six exonerations based on this cop. It would have been covered up, one person exonerated. So for me, the media, I mean, run, go to that courthouse. They got media there. Speak to somebody and say, help me out. Ask for help. Ask for help. Dad, you need your uncle, you need your grandmom, you need somebody in there, you need your teacher, you got to have an adult with you because you're just not, even though you think when you're 15 years old you know it all and you can manage anything, pretty quickly you become putty and they can be manipulated by older people and it happens even to the wiliest and toughest kids. So they should not go through a police interrogation without an adult next to them Preferably a lawyer. Both these men offered better solutions to try and stop wrongful convictions. The first one is education, which is very important because if one is educated about this topic, they can identify the wrongful convictions and how they happen. And then one way to try and help their situation is to get the media involved so that it can expose the government's misdoing and misdemeanors about everything to the public, which can stir up um, arguments and disagreements with it, which can hopefully overrun the case. And then the New York Times columnist said that before any of this situation happens, if you are 15 or 16, it is important that you have an adult with you because when you are that young, you do not have the capability 
of going through a police investigation without incriminating yourself. As we conclude this episode of our podcast, I think it's important to realize that the Innocence Project is a right, is a good step in the right direction, but there are so many other things that need to happen before we can say that people get true justice. While we say justice is blind, there are many cases to prove that that is not true. Join us next week. Where we talk about absolutely nothing until Mrs. Buckner gives us the next project. (laughs) Bye, guys.